Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff, recorded right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Garima Tohar Kapoor. I'm Sam Andre. And I'm Alvin Tejo. Big Pod Today friends. Alex Usher of Higher Education Strategy Associates will be joining Alvin later on to talk about the shocking insolvency at Laurentian University. Really excited for that because that is just a endlessly fascinating story of how one of the most important public institutions in Northern Ontario is now filing for bankruptcy. Alex is an expert on that topic, so we are really excited to have it. Also, thank you, Alex. We stole the episode title from one of your tweets because I perfectly described where my head is at on the province's reopening, which we will also be talking about on this pod. We'll be talking about the Ford government's plan to reopen parts of the economy while new variants of COVID-19 continue to grow. We will be reflecting on where the Ontario Autism Program is at two years after the program was overhauled by the Ford government to much, much reaction from parents uh, who are impacted. And we'll be checking into the fight about how much money the province has or has not spent during the pandemic Are they sitting on big piles of cash that could be helping people? Sam has got that. So let's just maybe dive right in, starting with school reopening and Ontario's potential next steps in fighting the COVID-19 pandemic. I must admit, I'm not sure my mental health can take many more headlines like what CTV went with on Friday, which was Ontario considers extending stay-at-home order, but will begin phased reopening of the economy next week. So Agrima, what are we going to expect to see from the Ford government today? There's a lot going on. And so I think we should let's step back a little bit. As we know, on January 11th, students in Northern Ontario public health units went back to school. On February 1st, uh, students in four other public health units across Ontario, including Eastern Ontario, uh, London, Ottawa, and Southwestern were able to resume in-person learning. And now we're at February 8th. And students in Durham and Halton regions and those outside of the GTA can return to the classroom. And then next week on February 16th, and that's after the long weekend, students in Toronto and Peel region can resume in-person learning. As we know, the province had initially indicated that students could go back to the classroom by February 10th, but the detection of new variants like the UK variant, which are more transmissible, slowed this return to the classroom. As part of Dr. Williams' rationale for the school reopening plan, he cited Peel's case count being under 200 last week and Toronto's being under 500. It's important to note that the province has allocated $341 million in federal funding that it's received to enhance safety in schools. These funds will be given to boards for a variety of measures, including the hiring of more cleaning staff, buying more PPE, and enhancing air filtration in schools. Merritt Stiles, the NDP education critic, has called on the government to increase provincial investments to ensure schools can open and remain open safely. At the same time, as we said Earlier, the province is expected to announce a reopening plan for the economy. It's also expected to be a staggered or a phased-in approach. All of this is, while we see the curve kind of bending a little bit, the fear of the B117 variant, first identified in the United Kingdom, is a bit stressful. It's expected to become, according to one mathematician and scientist Troy Day. The B117 variant is expected to become the dominant strain 
in Ontario within four to six weeks. So friends, there's a lot to balance here. Let's start with maybe schools. We know that it's important for schools to reopen safely. And many have said that schools should be the first to open and last to close. Do we think that we're doing enough to make this a reality? I think it's really tricky. I think the government deserves a lot of criticism for a lot of things. I am not actually sure that they're getting the school reopening wrong. I think the stress that families and kids are under is enormous. I think the evidence from the fall was that while community transmission was low, schools, I think, were not a major vector for transmission. And that the mix of people keeping their kids home, which had the effect of somewhat smaller classes on average, and masking and other measures were working. And so I I think on balance, I understand the approach that they're taking. I wish that they had invested more and hired more teachers. I think they're practically running out of teachers now at this point due to a number of factors. And so even that, I think it's a helpful political kind of stick that the opposition is using, but I'm not actually sure any government could meaningfully improve that situation. So yeah, on this one, I, I, I think they're maybe doing as about, about as good as they can. I mean, some of the criticism I think is is justified early on when they didn't invest back in September uh, or when they could have planned for it in the summer in terms of more physical space, trying to get those teachers hired as quickly as possible. All these things that the feds are now funding to try and keep places clean and safe for schools and for students. Like it's a real tricky spot for so many parents. And I can give you my firsthand experience having three kids in the system right now. And I got to tell you, like the biggest challenge is that they're not, they're learning at a much lower rate. And there are going to be so many families out there and so many kids where anytime they were online learning is just a gap in their education where they haven't learned a single thing, right? Like how does my six-year-old sit in front of a screen for six hours? He doesn't, he can't, he doesn't have that kind of attention span. He's six, right? Like we're adults who have to work in front of a computer screen all day and we can't maintain our focus like that all the time. And so how do we expect our kids to be able to do that? And I know a lot of parents where their kids have given up and like, this is just terrible, or they're going to try to do some homeschooling when they can, and they're going to try to do other things. So kids need to be in the classroom because this has gone on for a really long time. I just wish that all the investments had been done up front and that parents and teachers and students could have felt good and positive about the situation that they were in uh, instead of this like back and forth and uncertainty and not investing in the right resources for the for online learning and so much unknown with when are we going to go back and what determines when we're going to go back and all that other BS that we have to keep talking about every single week, right? It's just exhausting. I feel like I was maybe just too charitable as I was like sitting and reflecting more, which is there's really no excuse for the lack of preparation that they put in for sure, for sure. I was commenting more about the decision to send them back uh, on this timeline, but the the air filtration, the asymptomatic testing and like surveillance testing, I've still no idea why it's the way it is. Like it's, it boggles the mind. So my wife works with sick kids and they talk a lot about the asymptomatic testing because so many kids are now understood to be carriers 
and asymptomatic of COVID. And so they're the ones who are actually transmitting this all over the place. Now, they're not many of them, most of them aren't suffering from it and don't have to be hospitalized from it, but they are a huge cause of the transmission that is happening. But at the same time, the government still to this day refuses to just test every single person in this province who wants a test. And so how are we ever going to be able to actually find out how how these other variants and the, even the current strains that we're facing in terms of how uh, much they're transmitting across populations, right? For me, the economy question and the school question are linked in a way because I agree I, with that I can't actually find a lot of fault with the government on reopening schools on this timeline. I agree with the sentiment that schools should be the first to open, last to close. However, I can totally understand why there would be public anxiety about it, because at the same time that there is a lot of very clear messaging from the government that this may be the most dangerous part of the pandemic, they are also talking about reopening. And there is also not a clear narrative that has ever come from the government on data and where testing has come from. I mean, because I used to work in the Ministry of Education and I have friends there who have access to information. I have heard and anecdotally that schools are not really the most major vector of spread and we don't need to be as worried about schools as say workplaces but has the government ever published a breakdown by source that is clear and has become a clear part of their narrative or transmission i also this is a government that has time and time again reopened workplaces perhaps faster than they should and if we're going to be reopening the economy and schools anywhere near the same timeline with the same i think that is something that is worth worrying about so it can understand why the public is feeling confused and frustrated at this point. And for me, just seeing, going back to my how I intro the section, the headline of, we're going to continue the stay-at-home order. Do not leave your house, but send your kids to school and go shopping at small business. It was a problem at the first reopening, and it looks like it's they're going back to that strategy and approach. And I just find it so, so, so deeply frustrating. This is a complicated thing, and we were a year into it, and the government has not yet found a way to communicate clearly about where people are getting COVID, why they're getting COVID. It's, and just it seems like there's a boogeyman of the week kind of narrative around parties and around holidays and stuff. So I don't know. The stuff this um, week, too, about them refusing to clarify how many new staff they've hired in schools and like saying, yeah. telling the news they have to FOI it. And then they declined an FOI that the union put in. It's exciting cabinet confidentiality. Like all this stuff just sows distrust. Like it's so juvenile. Yeah, we're not we're governing through a public crisis where neutral data helps. And yeah, they've not a lot of improvement over this over the pandemic. So maybe from leaving the world of the pandemic for uh, a quick moment. Last week, the Ford government put out a press release announcing new supports for families of children with autism, namely support for applied behavior analysis, speech language pathology, occupational therapy, and mental health support starting in March. So you read the headline, it seems like good news at first. However, when you actually dive in, it's a little bit more complicated. Going back for uh, a quick moment, it has been two years since the Ford government made changes to the program that were intended to end a long wait list of children waiting for autism services. However, what the PCs essentially did at the time was they took money that was not enough already for the folks in the system and spread it around more people, reducing the wait list by giving more people less support. And the amounts that they were proposing to give were nowhere near enough to cover the cost of autism supports, which can be in the tens of thousands of dollars. So 
after parents who were using the system had a fairly historic backlash, the Ford government shuffled Minister Lisa McLeod out of her position and promised a more long-term review of the program and provided interim payment to the parents in the old program to stave off some of the worst impacts of their proposed reforms. So the review has been ticking along, and this is the first news we've received about next steps in quite some time. So Chris, what has the government been doing with all of this time? So last week's announcement I thought was really interesting. It does appear to signal that the Ford government recognizes the province will need to cover some of the services the original program, their original program was just not set up to cover, like ABA therapy. Some of these things that were in the press release were really important to the parents and not anywhere near what the sort of the family wallets that the original program, it was nowhere near enough to cover some of those services. And they are launching it through a need-based assessment program to be covered by the province which could result in families receiving anywhere from an extra 6600 to $65,000 annually, depending on the child's age and how the child fares through the provincial need assessment process. And they also announced that they were going to be extending some of the interim supports announced previously. So has there, so what does this mean? Has there been some progress? So this is where I think it gets complicated because I think all of that in the press release sounds good, but when you peel back the details, it's not really. So in March, only about 600 kids are going to be invited to participate in the new program, which by all uh, accounts pales in comparison to the actual need. Now the Ford government will phase this in over time under this new system, and a lot of folks will continue in the medium term to have their needs not met as this new approach ramps up. We also don't have a lot of details yet about the need assessment process, and that is going to, I think, be really important for families as they access services. But you still don't know if your kid is going to be looked after. So I can understand why parents are, in response to this, have voiced a significant amount of anxiety. Well, two years is a long time in a child's development. And so what has this very active community of parents and educators and the broader community been saying and responding? They have been responding uh, to it so far extremely badly, not I think at all how the Ford government wanted this thing to land. And it's it kind of got buried by COVID news, but the community of folks who talk about this, some of many of whom listen to the podcast, have been very active about this. Many have also pointed out that as the Ford government has pushed through this review, the wait list has grown. They are now more than halfway through their mandate. Their original purpose was to reduce the wait list. And the wait list is larger by a factor of basically two than it was when they started. So less money, more people waiting. Like it's hard to see where any sort of win for them on this file is. And the minister confirmed in the press conference that there are no plans to increase the funding to the program. So yeah, folks uh, who have been following this for a while are not happy and wanted to spend some time on it today because it's been getting a little bit drowned out in the COVID news. I think this will be interesting to follow as COVID restrictions ease and as we come back to some sense of normalcy. The the advocacy organizations, the parent groups, they're very well organized. They're very well coordinated. And they have a loud voice. And this is the perfect example of one of those instances early on in the Ford government where Ford would say all the right things. My heart bleeds for them. And I understand the challenges and all that. And the money will be there for you and all that other BS that he likes saying and then not actually following through on. He's going to have to own this and their inaction and incapability of, of actually delivering on their promises on this. I think like 
the shuffle from Lisa McLeod to Todd Smith, which was supposed to be their reset with the community, spend this enormous amount of money that they'd announced, et cetera. That was in June 2019. Like it was like a year and a half ago. It's the fact that the pandemic came, I think, distracted everybody. But it's wild to me that they're at a place where only 600 kids are going to get served. Like they just broke something basically for three full years now and are saying it's going to be yet at least another year or two before it's fixed. Like if I was these parents, I would just be so fucking furious. Like it's incompetence. Yeah. And uh, if you uh, search any of the autism hashtags on Twitter, you will see that they are extremely pissed off. So yeah, a conversation we should come back to because I I must admit when I saw the press release, I realized as a podcast, it's been a while since we've talked about it. And I didn't see a lot of media pickup of the story. And it's like, it's hugely important. I remember reflecting when we talked about this when the Ford government originally broke the program that the liberal government didn't get this entirely right either. And societally, we have not moved yet to a place where we are adequately care for kids with autism and we don't have a systemic approach to it. It is very disappointing to see this government put its foot in the sand being like, this is what we're doing. This is how much we're spending kind of deal. And and it's back to money, right? Why are they sitting on what they claim to be a priority and not spending the money that they said would be there for parents and for kids with autism, right? There needs to be more to being a government than watching the pennies. Speaking of money, maybe let's check in on how much money the province has. We are closing in on the end of the province's fiscal year. And as we do this, there are a lot of questions coming out of the opposition and from media about how much money the Ford government is potentially sitting on that was meant to fight the pandemic. The Ford government is saying that most of the money has been committed and that the headlines are misleading. The opposition is, I think, trying to make the case the Ford government is penny pitching in a time when there's historic need for spending. So Sam, I'm curious, how do we, for our listeners, parse what is true here? complicated story, but I did a bit of a deep dive, so I'll try my best to paint a clear picture. I think people who follow the news probably saw the headlines recently that they're sitting on $12 billion of unspent COVID funding. And that comes from a report from the Financial Accountability Office, who did an assessment of the province's Q2 spending, so halfway through the year, end of September. And so at the time, they said that they had set aside $16 billion for COVID things, so health, jobs, everything. And it only spent $4 billion, so 12 was unspent. And then the federal money gets kind of lumped in there and get confusing because the feds have given Ontario $7 billion of that 16 So try to keep these numbers in your head. So of that 16 $6 billion is for the healthcare system, including like long-term care. They've only, as of the end of September, had spent 28% of that. Then $5 billion is for the People and Jobs Fund, and that includes things like municipalities, transit, things like that. And they'd only spent a third of that as of halfway through the year. And then they have the $5 billion in the Contingency Fund, of which they'd only spent 9%, most of it on ads, by the way. And so you add that all up, and that's where the $12 billion comes from. Now, they rightfully point out there is more spending to come. They have a whole half of a fiscal year left to come. More testing, hospitals, more funding for the municipalities. The billion dollars they committed to frontline worker wages is still yet to be expensed, as we've talked about before. The small business support grant. So there's a bunch of stuff still to be spent. But the the number that they trotted out was that 80% of it had been allocated. So we only are sitting on 20%. But that's not true because the the 80% is only of the health and the jobs fund, not the contingency fund, which is $5 billion. So put it all together, basically. The feds gave them $7 billion. In total, they've set aside $16 billion. 
they say if they spend all of it, including all the small business stuff that may or may not come to fruition, they're only going to spend 56% of the money. So in the end, they are definitely, at least as of now, sitting on $7 billion. So it has the effect of basically they've spent the federal cash and they spent only $2 billion of their own. So Ford was basically saying, we're watching every single penny, the A being the NDP and the liberals, come hat in hand, always looking to raise taxes or the federal government. We're being prudent fiscal managers, basically, when they were being pushed on this by the media. But there's a lot of numbers there. But in total, they're not sitting on 12, but they're definitely at least sitting on seven is the end of the story. It's interesting to me because this is one of those files where detail matters, not because of what is happening, but because of the way it can be used to obscure the Ford government saying, no, it's all allocated. And the NDP saying you're sitting on 16 billion, I think are both misleading ways. And as the public, you sit there and like, okay, who's right? Somebody must be lying. But what is really frightening and sitting in the middle here is that there is a government that looks like it's going to lower its deficit next year on the back of federal transfers that were meant for COVID. Like, is anyone else, does anyone disagree with that, like that assessment? No, not, not in the slightest. And when you think about what they didn't spend money on and where they could have spent money on and how that could have reduced transmissions or increased testing or done anything to prevent any further deaths or any further infections, then you're thinking of the fact that this government is actively deciding to save billions of dollars at the expense of people's lives and suffering, right? Like, I know that sounds kind of crass, but that's exactly what they're doing. And it's in incredibly frustrating to know that they're sitting on that and just not using the dollars they've already allocated themselves out of some you know, political calculation to try and come out of this shinier than they came into it. And so we were both going into election seasons provincially and federally. And I think this is going to be a huge point that you're going to hear more and more from federal liberal MPs in Ontario, where they're essentially going to run against Doug Ford and say that all the woes that happened during the pandemic are because of him. And he didn't spend the money that we gave them to spend or that they allocated for themselves. And I think that'll be a huge part of the narrative. And Doug will obviously fight back the same way because they have an election in a year and a half, too. So people are playing politics with people's lives here. It just makes you think, too, like, because this is not just an Ontario story, right? That similar things are playing out in other provinces governed by conservatives. And it just makes you think the feds have spent lots and lots of money, including things that are clearly within the province's domain, like schools, hospitals, etc. If we were governed federally by conservatives, like, given how penny pinching they've all been like where would we be like because i don't feel like yeah. we're in a great situation right now anyway right we definitely wouldn't have serb we definitely wouldn't have the the sick leave that we at least have like it's gross i think i mean moving forward we all know that the seven billion that's been allocated isn't going to be carried forward to next year right and so yeah they'll use it to draw down the deficit one imagines or spend a little bit of it there's still two months left in the fiscal year so let's see but i think it's important to go back to last year's budget in 2020 when the provincial government introduced measures to reduce its tax revenues through different tax cuts to businesses, right? And that's part and parcel aligned with the values of the government. The problem is that it 
those are permanent revenue reductions. And so now we're in an environment where hopefully more and more people understand that government can play an active role in our lives and has a productive role to play in our lives. But we actually are maintaining a fiscal imbalance. And that I I just don't understand how we continue to do that and how that in this world is now a winning political strategy. It doesn't make sense from a policy perspective at all, but how that plays out politically when so many people see the value of public services in a completely different light, I think, than they once did is really important. Small businesses got a tax cut, but without investing the money we needed to control the transmission, small businesses have remained closed for a big part of the year. And so what was the point? I go back and forth in my head. It's like, what is the best way to illustrate this difference in philosophical approaches to governing to people? And I I always think back to ventilation in schools and money available to schools and like the journey that this government needed to go through on that file. Like back in March when we knew the pandemic was going to be happened and when we knew how big it was going to be, the province announced $30 million for the school sector on a budget of $26 billion. They then with federal investment, increased it to $341 million at the end of the summer. And then they allowed school boards to open up their reserves to basically pay for things like HVAC, ventilation, things that would keep classrooms safer. And they announced it two weeks before the school board started. We knew that ventilation was important in the summer. Imagine they had flooded the zone with money to do that. Just even on the things that they've moved on, they've done it in the most conservative way. And like everything with this pandemic is move fast, move big, you will save over the long run. It's not a perfect comparison because it's an island nation, but like New Zealand, mostly open and they did more faster. It just, it it strikes me as if this situation has not convinced this government that being conservative and effective fiscal managers is not watching the books, but rather looking at the long view, I have no idea what could. This was a historic thing and it's like it's uncorrectable for me at this point for them all right want to do another rapid fire round last time it was a semi-rapid fire round but we got into it on the governor general we got a couple good comments on it though so this can be semi-rapid fire too i want to read just a couple headlines to the group and just get quick reactions so last week canada declared the proud boys a terrorist group any thoughts on proud boys as a terrorist group thumbs up to that i mean i thought it was funny because ontario proud and canada proud have their Twitter handles and a bunch of people thought that they were affiliated with those. So you kind of have this like right wing group defending themselves against an extreme right wing group and like we're not that extreme, which was really funny to to watch play out. Yeah, I think it's I think it's good. It's it's a bold step for sure. And we're going to be doing a bit of a deep dive into this next week. We're having on the Canadian Coalition to End Online Hate. And so stay tuned for that. Yeah, absolutely. I worry a little bit about the broad use of terror that came out of the war on terror and the implications that had for the world and continuing to apply it to current problems. Like I think there is, I've seen some on the left criticize that, not the intent of the move, but perhaps the actual practical application, properly treat white supremacy with law enforcement and to view it as such. But it is a, I don't know, terrorism has been a problematic uh, concept for the world and what you're able to lump under terrorism. So I had some thoughts uh, about that. All right, next one though. The Ontario government unveiled a gritty new ad to encourage people to stay at home during the Super Bowl. I mean, it kind of looked like the one that the Americans have been playing with uh, Dr. Fauci. 
right? It was almost the same ad, bunch of people hanging out and then it cuts immediately to, you know, people in the ER and people dying, which was also a sketch on SNL, which was hilarious with Dan Levy on this weekend. Sure. I mean, I guess it's good that they are spending money to tell people to stay at home. Yes. I thought it was a good ad. I have no qualms. All right. Strong support of government moves in this rapid fire. Last one. This is a fun one. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki answered questions last week about whether former President Trump would continue to be extended the privilege of intelligence briefings, given concern that he may use it to enrich himself. Biden had a statement where he indicated that he was not comfortable with this. Officials have clarified that there is a review process and that no determination has been made yet. I must admit, I laughed. I was like, there are some things in this life you don't need to review. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the, the he's Russian already operative. leaked information. <laughs> While he was president, he's leaked sensitive information that he got from his private briefings. So, yeah, I don't know why they would continue this. A quick note on Jen, Jen Psaki, because she's been really good, uh, I think, and very refreshing in the first couple of weeks. She did flub her response about Space Force because she just couldn't help herself because... It was a question about Space Force, but uh, generally speaking, I think uh, people are welcoming the new sort of professional tone coming out of the White House. Yeah. I don't know if I'll ever be able to take Space Force seriously, even though, like, I know there's like valid security things and there's like a whole school of space policy thought that is like important for the future. Do you know how long it takes for a new television show to be pitched, funded, filmed and aired? Like... The moment it was announced that Trump wanted a Space Force, they started working on a comedy series that is now on Netflix, right? Like, it's just so funny. All right. Well, that's it for the rapid fire. We will uh, take a quick pause, talk to you a little bit about Patreon, and then we'll be back with Alvin's interview with Alex Usher. Stay tuned. This podcast of ours has run for over 100 episodes across five seasons. We've had a few hosting, a number of notable guests, but most importantly, listeners like you joining us along the way. A number of you are Patreon supporters, and we wanted to take a second to thank you for your contributions. We do this pod because we love talking about the issues and discussing solutions that can help real people in this province. 100% of your donation goes back into the pod, paying for things like our technology platforms, hosting, editing software, equipment, and upkeep. And we want to keep doing quality podcasts for you. So please, for those of you who are able, consider joining our group of Patreon supporters so we can keep improving this show for you, our dear listeners. Please go to patreon.com slash Ontario Loud. And now, back to our show. As some of you may have heard, Laurentian is in quite a bit of trouble. The university filed for creditor protection last week as it has become insolvent and will run out of money in a month. This isn't a new challenge as the university has faced financial troubles for a while, but this revelation was met by uh, a shocking number of people, many including deans and administrators at Laurentian itself. Quick note for listeners that insolvency and bankruptcy aren't necessarily the same thing. Insolvency is a financial state where you can't cover your debts and pay back your lenders on time, which Laurentian currently can't do. Insolvency can lead to bankruptcy, but you can also deal with your debts through other means that wouldn't normally be available to you, which Laurentian is attempting to take advantage of. So the $100 million or the $300 million question is, why is Laurentian insolvent? Laurentian themselves say it's down to not having enough students, having high faculty salaries, and small class sizes. But to dive into this more today is Alex Usher from the Higher Education Strategy Associates to discuss. Welcome, Alex. Hi. 
So Alex Usher, for listeners, is the president of HESA. He is an internationally recognized consultant and expert in post-secondary strategic planning and counseling. He's regularly engaged by Canadian and international clients for projects on student financial aid and access to post-secondary education. Many of us in the post-secondary education sector read his daily One Thought of the Day blogs in our emails, where he regularly dives into complex issues that affect institutions, governments, students, admin, and faculty in the sector. He's a prolific tweeter where you can find him at Alex Usher, Hesa. So Alex, I'd like to start a question following up on your blog about how Laurentian's current state is likely due to a combination of factors and not a single reason along the lines of not going after international students, maybe taking on too much debts from other construction projects, using federal research grants like their operating dollars. So I'm wondering if you could dive into that a little bit and maybe try to answer the question as to why you think the administration made those choices. Yeah, I'm not a mind reader on some of this stuff. I mean, look, the the biggest reason that we know about here is that the institution did persistently run deficits over a number of years. It's about 12 million in the last eight years, and then they had a few million from before that. And so my understanding is that the accumulated annual deficits were about 20 million. And that's a variety of factors, right? That's in the very short term. That's not including the impact of COVID, which is another five or six million that was expected for the year 2020-21. It does imply the results of, or includes the effects of the tuition freeze from 2019-20. So that hurt the institution. That's probably about a five, six million dollar event for them, that tuition uh, reduction that the Ford government put in. It includes the fact that they pay their faculty very well. Right, so the the median salary at Laurentian is about twenty thousand dollars a year higher than it is in than is at McGill. It's about median in Ontario. So high salaries is sort of that's some that's a factor of the Ontario system generally. But they were high for an institution that is not particularly research intensive, although they have becoming more research intensive over time. It includes the fact that they were low on international students, not the lowest by any means, but they didn't follow the path of other non-GTA institutions like Windsor, like Algoma, which went up to about 20% international student. That probably cost them six, seven million. And yeah, they have higher costs. You know, the reasons that you talked about is that they have a higher staffing than a unilingual institution of the, the same size. They've got some added responsibilities. So all that stuff gets you to about $25 million of the, the picture. There's more though, and that's the thing. And this is the part. This is the part that we, it's very tough to figure out because, as in near as anyone can tell, the actual liabilities are in the mid 30s, like low 40s, something like that. So there's dark matter inside this question, which is where did the other money go, right? And part of what seems to have happened is that they were covering that money to keep afloat. They were doing two things. And number one, which was really bad was they only had one bank account. And so they weren't actually segregating out restricted funds. So they were using restricted funds to cover an unrestricted budget. And that's, as you mentioned, it was about the research accounts. So money that came in from CFI, money that came in from SHRC, NSERC, CIHR. Yeah, they just used that to fund the current deficits. It was just a cash management thing, right? They thought, as far as I can tell, somebody thought, well, it's no big deal because we'll make that money back eventually. And as long as we can keep all the balls in the air, that's fine. And the reason they could keep all the balls in the air was because they had significant lines of credit. And this is true at most universities. They have lines of credit that they will sometimes tap into, particularly in Ontario, because now the tuition makes up 50, 60% of the budget of most institutions. You only get those twice a year. You get them in September and you get them in January. 
the government stuff comes in once a month, comes in 12 equal installments. But there's a long period there between January and September where it's not a lot of money. And so what some institutions do is they go to the line of credit and they balance it that way. And that's more or less what Laurentian had been doing for years. It would take out every February, March, it would take out somewhere between seven and $17 million worth of debt and they'd float it until September. What seems to have happened and the various legal documents make it a little bit unclear what happened exactly. Those lines of credits disappeared sometime in the fall. It's not that the date is unclear, but at sometime in the fall, those and the affairs don't say that the ba the banks stopped them. They just said it was agreed that we wouldn't use those facilities anymore. And that was particularly the one with Desjardins, which in April they had 14, 15 million from. That's it. That's all we know. And once the line of credit was cut, you couldn't keep the balls in the air, right? The juggling act had to stop. And so that's what happened. So they applied for creditor protection. They seem to have a financing deal of $25 million with some private capital corporation, which will see them through till the end of April, at which point, presumably there is some kind of provincial bailout, but we have no idea what that will look like. So you started touching on their situation and how unique is their situation versus other Northern colleges and universities in Ontario and COVID notwithstanding, you could kind of see that a lot of these institutions have been a bit on the precipice here. I wonder if you could dive in a little bit into is it really unique? Like, are they just because they have to be bilingual? Like, are other universities not in a similar situation as well? And how are they managing their crunch versus what Laurentian decided to do? So I have to be very careful about this because I have a lot of universities screaming at me today for having written a piece saying how different is Laurentian at the day dealing with some interesting emails. But we don't know if anybody else is in the same situation because we don't know about that dark matter. Right? Like there's only so much of what we know about what happened at Laurentian. There's only so much we can know what's going on in any institution. Do we have similar kinds of juggling? Is there that or is there something below the the water, an, an iceberg out there that <laughs> you're about to hit? I don't know. All I can tell you is if you look at institutions which are running persistent deficits, Nipissing is in a similar position to what Laurentian was and maybe a little bit more serious. But again, we don't know about the other stuff, right? So if their bankers are okay with it and they want to keep giving the line of credit, it's fine. There's no problem. Um, Lakehead's fine. Algoma's fine. I mean, they're always, they're small and marginal and they pay their faculty a lot less. So maybe they're able to to hit that. But Algoma, like I say, is 20% international. So that's a little bit extra money in there that they can deal with. I mean, Lakehead, I haven't looked into specifically, but they're not running deficits. So you wouldn't think that they are in immediate danger. The Ontario college system seems to have jumped in with both feet on trying to get international students to supplement declining tuition dollars. And you talked about that on one of your blogs recently as well in terms of how they've been able to recover this. But I mean, that's kind of a tricky preposition as well, knowing that I think Australia had a couple of issues there with international students because they were leaning on them so hard over a number of years. Mm -hmm. I, I kind of want to get at like how much of this is government's responsibilities. I'm not just blaming the Ford mm -hmm. government here. But how much of this has to do with government policy that's tied hands or made it more challenging for institutions over the last several years? Yeah. So I mean, if you go back to, I think, 2008 or so, I don't think there's been any real change in government funding over that period. And meanwhile, costs keep escalating, right? I mean, there's always three sides to this. There's public funding, there's private funding, and there's costs. And basically what we have is we have a set of institutions that have been increasing their costs, pay their faculty more, grow, all those kinds of things. And government won't 
increase the amount of money that's being given. So what do they do? They go to the international student will because that's the one piece of the market that they can make some money in. They don't have to do that, right? Like they could just trim their budgets and be less expansive, right? I mean, there's nothing saying they have to have the kind of cost per student ratio that they do. They could look more like Quebec universities. They could be cheaper. Nobody wants to do that. So this is the, the golden rule of post-secondary budgeting is that you never, ever reduce costs. You always try and increase the, the revenue. So everybody's chasing those <laughs> international student dollars. And no, but I mean, I want to be clear about this because people say, oh, it's government's fault. Well, okay. But like, it's not like there, there aren't other parts of the public system, education systems which are dependent on the public purse, which deal with static budgets. They do. They find ways to make do. You have to remember that Ontario universities and colleges choose to spend more. They choose to be at the high end of salaries, at least on the university side. Ontario profs make more money than anybody else. And that is entirely due to international students, right? Is that if you look system-wide, universities and colleges, every single dollar of every single person's salary increase by for the last six years has been covered by international students. End of story. So we could do with fewer international students, but there's costs. Yeah. Also hard to bank on international students when you're in a global pandemic. We've done reasonably well, though. I mean, so here's the thing, right, is Canada has done astonishingly well, as far as anybody can tell. So we have University of Toronto, which I see this year is looking, they say they're looking at a $475 million surplus. <laughs> okay. And that's on a budget of about $3.5 billion. So they're running a 15% surplus, which is astonishing, right? And they're not the only big institution that are seeing numbers up this year. If I'm not mistaken, not everybody is publishing their numbers. And I get the impression that the big prestigious institutions have done better than the smaller ones. But Queens is up, Western is up. For some institutions, what's the problem? So despite... <laughs> The provincial government's tuition cut and, and not making up that funding shortfall mm -hmm. and the new corridor funding model. How much of the changes that the Ford government's done over the last almost three years do you think have helped or hurt post-secondary institutions like Laurentian? Oh, there's no question that the tuition cut hurt Laurentian in an outsized manner, hurt all the northern ones. Every institution that is more dependent on domestic students than international ones. The international, like U of T... U of T sort of laughed off the 10% domestic tuition cut because they're like, eh, whatever. They make a lot more off foreign students than they do off domestic students. But I think what you see in every provincial government is doing the same thing. They're saying, we're going to hold the line on grant funding, right? So there's been no grant cut from Ford. They've kept that at the same level it was when they inherited it from, from the Wynn government. I mean, they've spent less on capital, right? They're not paying for the new campuses and Markham and, and places like that. But boy, every time we choose to do two things, one is not curb institutional spending, one, and two, not increase government funding, that's just carte blanche for universities to go out and get more international students. Right. And every provincial government in the country is okay with that because, hey, who who wouldn't want to get non-citizens to subsidize a public good in Canada? Sounds like a great deal to most of them. I mean, <laughs> there's an assumption here that uh, that you also mentioned that the province will have to come and step in at some mm -hmm. point. I'm curious as to why you think they haven't stepped in yet or did they know this was coming? Did they see this coming and did they uh, you know, try to stop Laurentian from doing that? 
it's clear that there were exchanges between the... So people can go and con consult the affidavits. If you go on the Laurentian Info site, there's a link to the actual court documents. And my recollection is that what they say is that the government was informed, I think in December, that there was something big coming. And there was clearly an exchange of emails in the week before the filing, which are secret. They're included as secret appendices to the affidavits, which I'm, everyone is like, oh my God, I want to see what those said. I mean, look, the Ford government is not going to allow a major university like Laurentian to go under, right? Like it's just not going to happen. The university is too big to fail. I do suspect that what has happened is that the government has said, go get your house in order before you come to us. And that's really what's going on here. So they're claiming financial exigency. They're very clear in the FAQ statement they've got there. That means there will be job losses. It's not easy to lay off professors. It's really hard to lay off professors, but it's not impossible. It's expensive, right? Like they usually need most, most collective bargaining agreements. And I haven't looked at Laurentians lately. Most of them require effectively 52 weeks notice. Well, um, I mean, Alex, how do you fire a tenured professor at a university? You claim financial exigency and you can do it. There are clauses in the in every collective bargaining agreement that say this is how you do it. And it's and they're so circumscribed, like a university has to be in real desperate straits. And that's the thing. That's what exigency means, right? Now, no university wants to claim exigency. In fact, they go to really ridiculous lengths to avoid it. And so what usually happens to universities in Laurentian's case, and there have been a couple. I mean, in the early 90s, Cape Breton was a few weeks away from this kind of, it was in the same kind of position. Can't. I, if I think if someone, if I remember someone telling me this, that they told some of their employees, please don't cash your checks right away this month. That was the early 90s, right? That's the early 90s recession. Acadia required a bailout in the last, I'm going to say it's about 10 years ago now, right? It's 10, 2011, 2013, somewhere in there. But they did it quietly. They didn't tell anybody. It was all done behind the scenes. It was taken care of and the provincial government gave them four or five million dollars and it all kind of worked out. That's not the way this government works. This government was not up for a quiet settlement. I think it wanted to show institutions that it was serious about not covering up for bad behavior as they saw it. And like I say, there has to be some kind of provincial government intervention. It can be, it doesn't have to be one that hurts the taxpayers. I suspect what you'll see is something like, here's a $30 million loan. And for the next 10 years, we're going to reduce your grant by 3 million a year. It'll be something like, I don't, I don't know the actual terms, but that's the way it'll look. Right. And what will happen is that the provincial government will at a minimum replace part or all of the board of governors. Right. Like that's going to be number one, which is, well, and it has to be, it has to be. I mean, I don't think there's any credibility here. At the very least, everybody who's on the finance committee has got to go. There's, there's no way that you put up with that. A lot of governors are government appointed. Yeah. And I can't remember who's who on that board. I, what her, somebody told me this the other day is that actually there's quite a number of board positions all over the province that are just empty. It's just one of those things. They haven't got around to doing it with all the being busy with the global pandemic thing. And so there are a number of people who are lined up to go on those boards at a moment's notice anyway. But I think it's more a matter of there's an accountability mechanism here. It's a governing team that failed and you got to get rid of it. Now, what the government asks for on top of that? Hmm. I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know. I'm not sure they want to get in the business of micromanaging. I think they just want to see that whoever's in charge is actually righted the ship. And in principle, you can write the ship by increasing income or decreasing costs. Problem is at university, increasing revenue takes a few years work, right? It takes, you can't just jump into the international field and sort of say, I'm going to go grab students. It takes you a couple of years. So in the short term, yeah, you're probably looking at some pretty significant cost cutting of various types. There's another thing that maybe enough people haven't talked about is the damage to the reputation of Laurentian right now. As mm -hmm. students are deciding this winter 
where they're going to go. Uh, I've seen a couple of tweets of people saying, well, I'm definitely not going to go to Laurentian now. How do, you, how do we quantify the damage reputationally to this institution? And what are the challenges that they're going to face over the next couple of years because of that? How long do you think it's going to take to get out of it? Reputational damage like this, two, three years. I mean, York's gone through this kind of thing in one of their several hundred interminable strikes that they've had over the last... Um, <laughs> little while. No, but it happens, right? I mean, the, the yeah. last one, which lasted wherever there was, like 100 days or something like that, and, and extended in well into the acceptance period, that did have a noticeable effect on their intake of students. But that comes back after a couple of years, and, and no one will remember it. I don't think people will remember it. 18-year-olds won't remember it three years from now. What you do have is a one-year and maybe a two-year dip in students who want to apply and of those who apply those who then accept an offer and that's going to take a few years to run its way through the system right so you get one bad year that actually means your income is bad for four years because that smaller cohort for the for the 21 22 entering cohort that's going to be with you for four years and so it'll take a while to come back from that and maybe that'll be the case for 22 23 as well you'd hope by 23 24 they're back on their feet i don't think it's going to affect the local students that much because they don't really have anywhere else to go right i mean i think at most regional institutions, you've got 75, 80% who go to the local institution because it's the local institution, because it's good enough and it's fine, right? So it's not going to affect them. What they're going to lose is all those students from Ottawa, the GTA, who've been balancing the local demographic loss, right? So it, Laurentian talks about this a lot in their filing. It's like, well, the number of local students is down 20% since the beginning of the decade. And that's true. There are just fewer young people in the North. They've been able to cushion that quite a bit. As I say, oh, Ottawa and GTA I don't think they're going to be able to do that this year. I think they're going to lose out of an entering cohort of about 1,500. I would think they will lose about 200, 250. It's going to hurt, right? And that loss is there for, like I say, all the way through. <laughs> A lot of people are trying to find someone to blame, right? At the institution specifically. Is it is it the CFO? Is it the, the president? Is it the last president? Is it the last CFO? Is it a comedy of errors from a, a whole plethora of people? But- Someone needs to have their head on a spike and a lot of opinions out there. Yeah, without knowing more facts, I'm very hesitant to say very much about that because I just don't know. Whatever the dark matter was out there about cash. I mean, it seems to me that part of it was there was a cash management strategy that went bad. And so at a minimum, I think you, you, you know, the, the, your, your first question goes to the CFOs, right? So, and that doesn't mean that they're... Degree of culpability, I don't know. The new financial, the VP of finance or finance admin, I've forgotten her title. She's there from about 2017 onwards. Late 2017, I think she was appointed. So is that her? Is that the per How much of that did she inherit? I mean, the big one that everybody's boggling about is the fact that they only had one bank account until November. <laughs> so like in the entire 50 years of their existence, it never occurred to them to have more than one bank account. So there's a lot of you know blame to be spread about that, but it's one of those interesting questions, right? They said, what did the previous president know? I'm like, what? If I were a president, I can't imagine what would prompt me to ask my VP finance how many bank accounts we had. It's just like, that's just one of those things you take for granted that somebody's got their hands on. Like, I don't know. I, I genuinely don't know about these kinds of things. It's the kind of thing you'd assume the finance committee of the board had a hand on. And again, that's why I think there'll be some board changes. But look, at a broader level, I think there's a lot, there's widespread refusal to look reality in the face. It was not, everybody reads the financials. Everybody knows that there was, whatever it was, six or seven years of consecutive deficits. This was not a secret. The university 
maybe could be blamed for issuing what I would call goofy press releases about balanced budgets. What they would do is every time that they they adopted a budget that was balanced, they would release a press release that said, hey, balanced budget, and just never bothered to mention that, yeah, we did that the last six years too, and it never actually worked out that way, right? I mean, so, yeah, but I mean, lots of institutions do that way, right? It's spin. They want to sell themselves. But I think the faculty union was quite aware that costs, that, that expenses were ahead of revenues. The administration was quite aware that expenses was ahead of revenues. And I kind of think that they just thought one day it would all get better. Somehow each of these, the $1 million a year, $2 million a year, $3 million a year, which in the context of a $200 million annual budget is not crazy. Everyone just assumed, well, next year we'll be in surplus and we'll turn it around. Or next year we'll be in surplus and we'll turn it around. I just think there's a lot of people who just didn't want to know. So who's to blame? I don't know. Now, all that said, again, I think there is that dark matter out there. We just don't know what some of the, there's some of the cash management issues I think that are going to look worse when all the information is out than they look currently. And then you may have some more specific people to blame, but that's my reading of it right now. So I, I wonder if this will, as you're hearing from other institutions, is this going to lead to more introspection from some post-secondary institutions to see where they're at, see if they can see the uh, the train coming down the tracks and try to avoid some of these challenges. And given the uncertainty with the pandemic and how everything else is shaping out, if this will lead to some more prudent measures being taken in the future. Well, like I say, there are a number of institutions and there are not many, I think Nipissing and OCAD are the other small vulnerable institutions in, in Ontario. And I was talking to some of the OCAD people over the summer, and boy, they were pretty advanced in taking some of those measures, right? They were quite aware of what kinds of financial challenges they had. There was no looking aside on that one. Nipissing, I don't know. I mean, the other really vulnerable ones are all out in the East Coast. And like I say, U of T, $475 million surplus, right? There's a lot of institutions out there that are doing just fine, just fine. Carleton, just fine. York, just fine. Like... Some of these institutions have been putting up really big surpluses for a number of years because they found a way to make that whole international student thing work for them. There's some others that are plodding along. I don't actually. So the idea that there's a sector wide crisis. No, there was a sector wide challenge with COVID, which turned out to be a lot less than people thought because international enrollment turned out to be a lot more resilient than anybody thought possible last March. Like it was, I mean, certainly we thought that it would be really bad in some places. And it turned out not to be really bad in most places. We don't have all the college data in yet, but apart from that, I think it's fine. So I don't think it's a system-wide problem. And I think people are definitely, presidents will look at what happened to Laurentian and they'll be talking to their VP finances and saying, walk me through this again. How is it that, this, that, that these things are going? And I think at most places is going to be fine. I think there's just some red flags that have gone up, should go up, and that will hopefully boards and administrations will do what they need to. Well, thanks, Alex. That was really enlightening. And I'm sure our listeners appreciate that deep dive. But before we let you go, I want to give you some rapid fire questions that you can just spit out your top of the mind thoughts about in a segment that we like to do here on Ontario Loud. Thoughts on are we going to have, when are we going to have a federal election? Fall. As as soon as we're 70% vaccinated. Fall, interestingly enough, an MP told me this. If we wait till October, a number of MPs, I think like 150 or so, will have hit their six, hit the six mark for their pension plan. So that might be part of it too. That might be too cynical even for, <laughs> yeah. I think um, people would notice that and get really annoyed. 
Yeah. Second anyway, half, how is TFC going to do next season? Well, we'll make the playoffs again. A lot depends on what happens. How do we replace Piatti? And how do the young ones do? I was really happy last year, end of last year, to see the pride of the Franco-Ontarians, right? Ralph Prizo making making some starts at the end yet. That was great. Love to see more more young kids coming through. That's the important That's the important thing for me this next year. Alex is a big TFC fan for those who uh, didn't know. Last one, if you follow his Twitter, he has a strong opinion on this particular minister. But thoughts on the Honorable Marilee Fullerton, our current minister of long-term care. You've called her the angel of death. What, when do you think she'll resign? Do you think she'll get fired? Do you think she'll get shuffled? Do you think she'll stay there and just keep taking the hits what will it take for her to get pushed aside finally i think the canadian elite as a whole has more or less given every government in the country a pass for whatever happens no matter how many deaths occur i mean it's just astonishing right like the support that the Legault government gets in quebec and the ford government gets in ontario no matter how many people die you never see a, a newspaper come up and say this person needs to go you take a vacation in the wrong place. You go to St. Bart's and, and that's a firing offense. But allowing thousands to die in long-term care homes apparently is not a firing offense. I don't, like, I'm I'm sickened by the lack of accountability we've given, the, the pass we've given them. I was okay with giving governments a pass up to about June, I would say, because it genuinely wasn't an unprecedented situation but man, allowing a second wave back and more to the point, seeing every single fault that we had in the first wave recur in the second wave when it comes to long-term care is sickening. It's criminally liable. In a decent society, I don't want to get all Trumpian about this, but she should be in jail, right? Like for that level of neglect, that level of, you know, I don't know what else to say, right? It was, we've just gone through a hundred days where we were doing five or six Walkertons a day. Thanks to this government, right? Like, and I thought to let a Fullerton go would be to, I think, to imply a broader guilt in the government itself, which is why I don't think it'll happen. I, I just, I have no words for how angry I am about how we've gone since about July. I'm really glad that the case counts are going down quite rapidly now, much rap, much more rapidly than they did in, in March, April. But oh boy, I, yeah, I don't, know, I don't know how much more I can say without actually starting to yell and getting angry, which is not the purpose of this You're always welcome show. to come on to Ontario Loud to, to scream and yell about certain things. So maybe we'll have you on to talk specifically about some of those things in the future. Sure. But uh, I want to thank you, Alex, for coming on. Alex Usher is the president of the Higher Education Strategy Associates. Follow him on Twitter at Alex Usher, H-E-S-A, and uh, follow his daily blogs as well. Thank you for listening. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you again to Alex for joining us and for all of you for listening. Next week, catch our interview with the Canadian Coalition to End Online Hate as we speak to a couple of professors at Ontario Tech about the growing influence of online platforms and its resulting extremism in society. Ontario Loud is Chris Martin, Karima Talwar Kapoor, Sam Andrew, and myself, Alvin Tejo. Thanks to our researcher, Harmon Mundi, and of course, our supporters on Patreon. See you next time. Stay safe.